Let's pray again together. Father, may we never grow familiar with the words of that song. Lord, that your grace is amazing. Father, just continue to impress that on us, I pray, and do that especially this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture in Revelation. Lord, we're, we're a church that acknowledges that you are sovereign over everything. Lord Jesus, you are seated on the throne and you are overseeing all that goes on. You're sovereign over every church, every government, every family, every life. We acknowledge that, Lord. But Lord, I pray you'd show us today that you're present with us. You're not just sitting off somewhere. That Lord, you're you're here today. You see and you know perfectly what's going on in each of our hearts. Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church today. I pray that in in your name, Lord. Amen. A lot of you guys know that um, that I like to I like to ride a bike. I'm kind of a cyclist, and here's here's one of the things that if you ride or if if you're thinking about it, or even if you're not, let me just tell you what happens. Okay, so I go with the flow of the traffic. All right, over not in the middle of the traffic. I'm not in Chapel Hill like a lot of the riders down there. So I'm on the right hand side going with the flow of the traffic. And I really can't see what's going on behind me. I don't use a mirror, and I don't care really what's going on behind me. If he's going to come in and plow me in the back, so be it. I can't do anything about that. But I watch the traffic that's in the other lane that's coming toward me. And even though we're separated usually by one lane of traffic, I keep my eyes on that other car, more so now than I used to, but I I keep my eyes on that car. And, And I don't really want to make eye contact with the driver Sometimes that's okay if it's just for an instant, but I don't want to maintain eye contact. I don't want them staring at me. Here's why. We move toward what we stare at. All right? Whatever has our attention is that which gives us direction. So if, if that little old lady or that kid is driving down the car, driving down the road in their car staring at me, I don't think they, I hope they don't intentionally mean to, but they start to kind of veer off in my direction. I do watch for that. I'm ready to hit the ditch when I see them staring at me for, for very long. Because that's, that's just the way it is. We steer toward what we focus on. All right? That's true in the car. That's true on the road. That's true in our hearts. We move toward what has our attention. We move toward that which we're focused on. And today, as we look at this passage in Ephesian, excuse me, in Revelation of the Ephesian church that Sarah Marie read, we're going to see what on the surface looks like. Man, this is an awesome church. All right? And, and Jesus says so. He, they're working hard. They're enduring difficulties, even persecution. They're discerning. They know the difference between good doctrine and bad doctrine. They're able to tell who's preaching truth and who's not. 
I mean, it's pretty, pretty cool to see how strong this church seems to be. On many fronts, it looks perfectly healthy. And honestly, I would want Jesus to be able to say that about us. To be able to say what he says about them as he commends them. Yet for all this Ephesian church was doing well, Jesus had one criticism, and it's huge. Because what we see had seemed to take place over the years in the church in Ephesus is that, I don't know, maybe their attention was distracted. And they somehow or other began to take small steps away from that one thing that was most critically important in the life of a believer and in the life of a church. He says, you have forsaken your first love. You have left that first love. And so, for all that they were doing well... Remember, Jesus is the one who has eyes like flames of fire. We saw that in chapter 1. And he's looking straight into the heart of this church and straight into the heart of those people. And he sees what's there, not on the surface, but deep in the very root of their being. And as he looks there, he sees something that's disturbing and dangerous. And guys, it's so simple. It's so simple. Everything in this book, Jesus says, can be summarized in two sentences. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that sums up the law and the prophets. It's, that's what was missing in this church, it seems. And so, as we start to look at chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, um, it's important that we understand kind of the pattern that's going on here and see what it is that Jesus is pointing out. And there's three, again, there's three words that I want you to kind of have in the back of your mind as we look at this passage and really all the others, the other six churches besides Ephesus. Those three words, okay? One is distraction. The other one is detraction, close, but they're different, all right? And the other is displacement, distraction, detraction, and displacement, because that's what seems to have happened in Ephesus. That's what happens in my life. That's what happens in all of our lives. There's this first, a distraction. Oh, look. And we start to veer that direction. And in this case, he says, you have left your first love. I'll talk about it in a minute. But whatever those distractions are, they keep us from giving our full attention to where it should be. Okay? Distractions. And after a while, that distraction and our attention going in the wrong direction leads to detraction. Meaning, what once was valuable and kept the heart of our focus, all of a sudden isn't quite as attractive as it used to be. It's not as valuable as it used to be. It's not as important as it used to be. That driving vision that we had when we got distracted from it, it's not a driving vision anymore. So it's, there's, been, there's been a change in its status. It's not as important as it used to be. And after a while, that distraction that has caused us to look away and all of a sudden our affections are more divided than they used to be. And before long, there's been a displacement. What once 
captured our hearts no longer is there. Okay? There may be a shadow of it. There may be remnants of it. But, and what Revelation shows us, and here's the deal. I was talking to some people this week about it. Our apocalyptic antennas are up, aren't they? Huh? I mean, for crying out loud. I got ready. I was thinking about getting on my bike yesterday. The sun was shining. Ten minutes later, it's cloudy. And the wind is blowing like crazy through my backyard. And five minutes later, there's a stinking blizzard. It's snowing sideways. And those are hard. They're hard pellets. They're icy snowflakes that are falling. And then there's this gentle Christmas card snow coming down out there. I mean, this is in 20 minutes. And then, boom, it's gone and the sun's shining again. And we're going, uh-oh. I heard the thunder, too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thunder. I forgot what that means, but I'm telling you, something's about to break loose. Right? So our, our, apocaly- our apocalyptic antennas are up, and not just because of the weather. Like, holy moly. What's going on politically and culturally? Things seem to be coming apart at the seams. What does this mean? How do we interpret what we see going on around us? We, so our apocalyptic antennas are up. We want to know what's going on. Except I'm not so sure we're really that, incur- that crazy to know about what's going on in our hearts. And that's where Jesus starts in the book of Revelation. This is not primarily about what is going to happen one day. It is about that. But all throughout the book of Revelation, it is an epistle. Most scholars, and, and I believe so too, and I just, we just haven't done it because I don't think we have the time to do it, but this is like the book of Hebrews. It was probably read out loud in one sitting to the churches that received it. Okay, so it takes about an hour. I've done that. Read it out loud. It takes about an hour. You have to read fairly quickly, but you can do it. So, so Jesus wants us to look at our hearts before we start worrying about what the thunder and the snow mean. And that's what Revelation 2 and 3 are about. And, and, and Jesus has this holy passion for his church. We can't begin to understand how deep that love is. And he is jealous for that love. And he wants our obedience. He wants our doctrinal integrity, right? He wants our understanding of the Bible to be robust and to be something that's going to make a difference in our lives. He wants us serving. He wants us at the Pregnancy Support Center. He wants us helping our neighbors. He wants us doing that. But what he wants first is our love, our affection. And that's to be the force that drives our lives. And so I say all that by way of introduction because there's a pattern in these seven sections of these letters to these churches. And everything that we saw in chapter 1 about Jesus, this vision of him as this son of man clothed in a long white robe, hairs white on his head, his holiness is seen, his vision, his eyes flames of fire, his feet burnished bronze, his holiness, his purity, his judgment, the word coming out of his mouth like a sharp two-edged sword, his face like the full sun. All of those characteristics of Jesus are going to be spelled out one at a time to each of these churches. 
Each individual church is going to see a different characteristic of Jesus that applies to their situation. And then everything that we see in these seven letters looks forward to what we're going to see in the rest of the book. All right? So everything is intertwined. It's all connected here. And every pattern is similar. First, there's this this word from Jesus to the angel of the church. It's the words of him, it says there in chapter 2. So so Jesus is identified in, in this particular case. He is identified as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the seven and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. In the next section you'll see something different about Jesus and in the next one something different and something different. And all those apply to what's going on in that particular church. So Jesus is identified. And then Jesus communicates something. Sometimes it's a a, a commendation, a compliment, sometimes it's criticism. There's cases where there's no commendation, there's no compliment, it's just all criticism. And then there's a couple of cases where he doesn't seem to have too much to say about things that are going wrong in that church. There's this word from Jesus. Then he gives a command, a correction that needs to take place. And then he gives a promise. Here's what will happen. And in every case we're going to hear, him who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are spiritual truths discerned with spiritual eyes that impact the spiritual focus, the spiritual engine of our lives, our hearts. And that's what Jesus is looking at. And then there's a reward. There's a reward that's given in every case. All right? In the case of of Ephesus, we have the opportunity to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. What he offers to us is what we had in the beginning before it was broken. And and it's going to be more amazing than we could imagine as we see that unfolding in the book. So that's that's what happens here. So the angel comes and so the first thing I want us to see, let's just kind of walk our way through this. First thing it says is the word, the angel to the church of Ephesus, right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The word that Jesus has for them and for us is I am here and I know you perfectly i know you perfectly and that's what that's what this this whole picture is of this one who uh, is just present here now let's talk for a minute about the city of ephesus okay i i've had the opportunity it was, it was just man it was just, what a great blessing it was to be able to be in the southern part of turkey with family from westwood who was serving there on the mission field they're back stateside now but to be there and to walk the streets of Ephesus, to, to be there where this church was, where Paul spent so much of his ministry. And Ephesus was a prominent city, as John wrote this letter, probably around 200,000 people, they tell us. It was a big city. It was situated on a major trade route. Uh, it was, it's the first of the churches that John writes to here, and, and there's a connection between all those geographically. And, and this church was a commercial center. It was a huge port there. It was a philosophical center. There's an amazing ruins of a library still standing there. It was a commercial center. It was an, uh, an artist center. The, the statues and the, and the things that lined the colonnade, that lined the main street, the ruins of those are still standing there. And you can just imagine what a beautiful place it must have been. White marble shining in the sunshine there on the mountainside beside the sea. It's an amazing place. It was a religious, spiritual center, too. And, and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world stood there. And it was the, 
the, the temple to, to the worship of Diana or to Artemis, this, this fertility cult was there. It's a, and now there's nothing but ruins. There's very little there to see of it. But at the time, it was an amazing thing. It's a, it, this place is religious. It's spiritual. It's artistic. It's philosophical. The commerce is booming. And this is where God chose to plant a little church first as the Apostle Paul came there. Actually, Paul wasn't the first Christian there. He's following up on work that someone else had done. So this church is there. And I've thought a lot about this this week because in the life cycle of a church, and there are life cycles of churches, most, most agree that Paul was probably in Ephesus and this church was getting on its feet and really beginning to, to make a difference in the community and in the whole region around 50 to 53 A.D., And I believe that John wrote the book of Revelation, received this vision, about 40 years later. So in the life cycle of a church, just like Westwood, there's this this energy that comes as that church first gets started. Chuck Lawless was here several months ago, a, a church planning strategist, professor at Southeastern Seminary. And he talked about the life cycle of churches. The churches that grow the quickest, reach the most people with the gospel, make the biggest impact with the lost community around them, are those that are just starting. Those young churches. There's just an energy there. There's a drive there. And as that church matures, yeah, they may grow a little deeper in the word, a little deeper in the doctrine, and that growth continues. But then, all of a sudden, just like there was here at Westwood, it's kind of like a roller coaster, just gets over the top and then starts to decline. And there's a, you know, there's just ebb and flow and decline in the life of a church. This church, I believe, was somewhere around 40 years old. The first generation of leaders in this church is now either very old or gone. And another generation has stepped in. And something has happened in the life of this church that Jesus sees and nobody else does. And he commends them. So he's there. And, and then he commends them. He said, I, I commend you for all I see you doing. And look at what the text says. I know your works, your toil, your endurance, your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostle and are not. And you found them to be false. Verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you've not grown weary. Down in verse 6. He says, I I know that you hate what I hate, the works of the Nicolaitans. So here's this church, and Jesus sees what they're doing. He says, I commend you. You are diligent. You're working hard. There's a lot of hours going into the work of the ministry of that church there. There's a lot of things going on that are good. And I would encourage you to go back into the book of Acts and read starting in chapter 18, read Acts 18 and 19, and just see what's going on in the life of this church. Go back and read the book of Ephesians and see how Paul is writing back to this church. There were some prominent pastors. There were godly men that led this church. Paul, Timothy, pastored this church. And there's good things going on, and he looks back. This is the church, by the way, in Acts 19, where Luke tells us, that the opposition against this church was so strong because the influence of this church was strong. There was a huge difference being made in this godless place called Ephesus. And they were called there for the first time the way. 
The Ephesian church was called the way. The word was faithfully taught, consistently taught. Those who were being taught were being discipled. They were growing in the word. Those who were growing in the word were beginning to live that out in their marriages, in their commerce, in their work, in what they did. They loved differently from the people around them. And they talked differently from the people around them. And they lived differently from the people around them. And it was so distinctive that they were the way. It was different. It was amazingly different. And this this community, this little group of believers was making a huge difference there. It says in Acts 19.10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. They were working hard. They were discerning. Notice what he says. I know that you can tell the difference. You've tested those who call themselves apostles. And, and you know if they're not or whether they are. And, and that's exactly what John would write in his epistle. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false apostles have gone out into the world. That was true then, and is it true now? Huh? My goodness. You have to be discerning. You have to be listening. Paul would go back and visit the elders of this church, not in Ephesus. They would come out to see him as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And here's what he wrote to them. Here's what he said to them in Acts 20. I know that after my departure, now listen to this, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And here's the scary thing. Listen to what he says. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. He says, be alert. There'll be wolves coming in in sheep's clothing. And John says, I mean, Jesus says, you're doing well in that. You're able to see the wolf and hear what his words are and make a difference there. They were discerning in that. Down in verse 6, it says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. There's a ton of books written about exactly what he's talking about there. Seems that there was a, a gentleman named Nicol, Nicholas, okay? And there's not real certainty on who he might have been. And this church, uh, the, not the next church, but the one after it, Jesus won't have any good things to say about their following the Nicolaitans because they seem to have adopted the view of the Nicolaitans. The church in Ephesus rejected it. And we don't know exactly what it meant, but somewhere or other it had to do with compromise. It had to do with temple worship, eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. It had something to do with the fact that it seemed that the Nicolaitans came in and said, Paul said that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So don't worry about it. You know, you can go to the temple where the food is sacrificed to idols and where the temple prostitutes are. You can, you can go there and, 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 and indulge in that, but just make sure you understand and your heart is right. And so there's a Gnostic understanding here. The Christians were being tempted to compromise. They were being tempted to let down their guard about what the Word clearly says they should not do. And Jesus says, you're not doing that. I commend you for that. You hate them, and so do I. Man, that's a hard word, isn't it? Jesus hating something. He hates falsehood. He hates those who would detract and destroy his sheep. We'll see how he responds to them in the rest of the book. It's not a pretty picture. 
And they're determined, he says. You face opposition and persecution and you stand up under the weight of it. You endure it patiently. So listen to what he says about the good things that are going on. Man, I want to be a part of that kind of a church. Except, look at what he says next. I see your heart. And therein lies the problem. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So we can stand against the evils of our culture. We can serve and work to meet the needs of kids and families in our community. And we should. We should stand against our culture with the truth of God's word. We should serve and step in and try to make a difference in the lives of people in our community. We should serve those with unplanned pregnancies. We should serve those who are stuck in poverty. We should stand against injustice. We should do all of those things. We could stand we should stand on biblical truths about human sexuality and our identity not being in what kind of sex we have. And we should understand what the Bible says about families. We should do all those things. But we must do them compelled by a love that Jesus says was missing in this case. So Jesus rejects this doctrinal zeal if there's no affection there. Jesus rejects our good works if they're coming from an empty well or a well that's serving something other than Him. And so here's this church. They were zealous for doctrine. But you know what? So were the Pharisees. Remember that? Jesus pointed that out to us. And what happened here, it seems, is that over the years, their doctrinal zeal, their zeal for the truth, their zeal to serve, lost their focus on what it was, who it was, rather, that they were to keep their eyes, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full into his wonderful face. We sung that. But they'd been distracted somehow. And because they had been distracted, the beauty and the value of the gospel was detracted. It was less valuable than it used to be. Maybe it was mixed with something else. Maybe in some way it had gotten kind of convoluted. And before long, everything had been displaced. That's what Jesus saw. They, he saw the, the love that they had once had had been displaced. So what is this love that they had abandoned? What is this love that they had forsaken? Well, there's a lot of discussion about that, too. And I don't think it's either or, okay? Is it, is it talking about their love for God? Yes. Is it talking about their love for, for Jesus? Yes. Is it talking about their love for one another? Yes, it's talking about that. Is it talking about their love for their lost and the community around them that so badly needed Christ? Yes. It, can it be summarized in that Great commandment that Jesus gave? Yes. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It can be summarized in all of that. So what happened there? How, how had that been lost? And I'm not sure. I can make some assumptions. I think we can. We can go back into the book of Acts and we can read about what was going on in that book, in that, in that city that made such commotion. Remember, all of a sudden, the church was so set on God and loving Him and worshiping Him that they rejected the religion of the Romans and the religion of the culture. They wouldn't worship the emperor. And they wouldn't go to the temple and worship the, the goddess of fertility. 
And, and those guys that were making those little silver idols that everybody was buying as souvenirs and trinkets and setting them up on, all of a sudden their business was drying up. And they rioted, Paul tell, the, the, the book of Acts tells us. And they went to that great Colosseum there. It's a massive thing, even now, even though it's broken and it's in ruins, but you can still see it. You can still stand down on the platform and speak in the same tone I'm speaking and hear it all over the place. It's an amazing thing. And they moved to the Colosseum with this riot. And all of the Christians, it seems, brought their books of magic and their idols and all of these things that were part of that culture and burned them. So what was so clearly distinct in their lifestyle and in their, in their practices seems maybe some of that stuff had started to work its way back in. They'd gotten distracted, detraction, and then displacement. Jesus saw it. He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Look at verse 5. Repent and do the works you did at first. There's the steps. Remember, repent, and do the works that you did at first. Remember the joy that you used to have. Remember when the work that you're doing now so hard brought joy to your life instead of exasperation. <laughs> Remember, he says, your desire to worship. Remember, he says, your desire not just to know the truth in your head, but to just have it stir your heart right in the middle of who you are. Remember that, he said. Remember, he said, what it was like when you loved each other with such a love that was so extraordinary that the community saw it and was drawn to it. Remember how sensitive you were to sin. Remember how sensitive to you, you were to what could be falsehood and what was actually truth. Remember how you desired to share your faith and you couldn't help but tell people about Christ. It says in Acts that the whole part of that world knew because of what was going on in Ephesus. Man, these people were so in love with Jesus. Remember the joy. Remember the worship. Remember the hunger you had. Just how badly you wanted to understand. It's, it's been so cool. Jason has been, he can tell you the story. He and Aaron can tell you the story. But a family member who's just recently come to faith. And he's just wearing them out with questions and enthusiasm and a desire. and It's amazing. It's so great to see that. Man. That guy loves Jesus so much. He says, remember. And then he says, repent. Like I said in, verse, in, in Acts 19, many of those who were believers, he says, came confessing and divulging their practices. So he says, repent. Turn from it. As, as you begin to do inventory through the work of the Holy Spirit, those things that have displaced your love for Christ... Turn from them and turn back to Him. That's what repent means. And do the works that you did at first. Go back to that again. Chuck Lawless, who, who was here at the church doing that conference a while back, wrote a blog about something. And, and when I first read it a couple of weeks ago, I was a little uncomfortable with the title of his article. He said, what a sweetheart love for Jesus looks like. And I thought, I'm a little uncomfortable with a sweetheart love for Jesus. But the more I've thought about it, and here's what he says about a sweetheart love for Jesus. 
Now, some of you need to remember and repent in regard to your love for your spouse, okay? Because this is going to take you back to when you just couldn't help it. It was, it was amazing. It was awful to watch. I mean, it was just, you know, I'm telling you. You guys sitting on the couch, zooming, I'm thought, uh, they're not paying a bit of attention to what's going on in this meeting. I'm talking about the membership meeting we had Friday night, and this newlywed couple here, you know, they just look so comfortable on the couch, zooming in on it, and I thought, you ain't listening to a word we're saying here. Still just eat up with each other. And I thought, I'm not sure how I can equate that to my love for Christ, but just listen to what Lawless says. He says, first, your world changes because of him or her. And secondly, you just want to be with them. So you're willing to change your routine. You're willing to change your goals. You're willing to change the clothes you wear. You're willing to change the friends you hang out with. You're willing to do anything for this person. Man, you just, everything changes because of them. And you just want to be with them. And in fact, thirdly, he says, not only do you want to, you can't wait to be with them. I'm just, man... And then you want to know everything about them, he says. And you want them to know everything about you. He says your heart leaps when you hear his or her voice. I'm not sure mine still does, baby. I'm, I'm, you know, 40 years into this thing, I'm, do I, oh, she spoke. Sorry. It's, just, it's deeper than that, okay? It's more, it's matured. What? Yeah, she speaks, I jump. That's how it works. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. So he says you want to hear from him. You want to hear his voice. And then not only do you want to hear him, you also want to talk to him. You want to please him. And in fact, nothing delights you more than to do what he or she would want you to do. And when you don't do that, it grieves your heart, he says. He says you talk about him or her, and you do it a lot. Seems like that's all you ever talk about. And finally, he says you just want to be with him or her forever. You've forsaken your first love, Jesus said. You're busy at church. When the doors are open, you're there. You're working your tail end off when it comes to all those things that go on down there. You serve here and you serve there. You give. But he says, some, I look past that outward stuff and I look at your heart and I see that at some place and at some point in time, you got distracted. It might have been the politics of the day. It might have been the just being drawn to the culture around you and the material things that that culture offers. It might have been the friendships and it might have been the, the entertainment that that culture offers. It may have been the charisma of a person. It may have been, it could have been anything, but something all of a sudden distracted your heart. Now you're still going through the motions over here religiously, but something has distracted you. And then all of a sudden, that thing that just, I couldn't help but to want to be with him. I wanted to hear from him. and I want, Now that all of a sudden isn't as important as it used to be. 
And that time that I wanted to spend with him, I'm willing to spend elsewhere. And before you know it, the throne of your heart has someone new sitting on it. And you could very well still be going through the motions as they were in Ephesus. Still here, still working hard, still in Bible study, still wanting to understand the doctrinal difference between us and them, still wanting to perceive what's going on around you and and catching the bad, you know, the lies. And Jesus says, someone else is on your heart. Something else is on your heart. So I want to take just a minute to give you some applications here, just to think through what this means to us. Because remember how the, how the passage ends. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says. And then he makes this promise, to him who conquers, to him who overcomes. I love that. that. The word there is the word Nike. The swoosh. Conquer. Win. Overcome. To the one who conquers... You will have what was lost. Coming from Revelation 22. This tree of life, this fruit of life that's ever flourishing, ever producing, that we'll see at the end. He says, you'll have that. But you need to remember from where you have fallen. You need to remember what you have forsaken and walked away from. All right? Jason was pointing something out to me this morning. We were laughing about it, but a book by James K. White that talks about the motivation of our hearts. White says that the longings, okay, the, the love or the affections of our heart, the way I understood it, it's like the computer of our car. Nothing works if it's not right, right? At least in the newer cars. If that computer's not working right, the engine of our life is not functioning. And, and White says, I'm quoting, operating under the hood of our conscience, he says, you cannot not love. Humans can't not love. We will love someone or something. And it's why the heart is the seat, he says, the fulcrum of the human person. The longings of the heart, he says, point us in a direction, and propel us in that direction. So, so that little old lady driving down the road looking at that guy on a bicycle and she keeps staring at him and all of a sudden she's going right at him. That happens with us, with our hearts, with what we look at, with what catches our attention. First it's distraction, then it's detraction, and then there's displacement. And Jesus says then there's death. Because the opposite of that is the tree of life. So here's the first thing I want you to think about. No one falls out of love. No one falls out of love. I've heard it a hundred times. Well, we just fell out of love. No, you did not. You don't, it's not like a hole you fall into. That's not how you begin to love, and that's not how you fall out of love. It's not a hole you fall into. There is, all of a sudden, a distraction. It may not be another person. It can just be an idea. It can be a temptation. It can be something that the enemy speaks into your mind. But whatever it is, there's a little step-by-step progression that begins to take place. The steps of it that I've kind of worked up are this. First off, they're what you just couldn't stand to be without at first. Now, all of a sudden, now there's a mundane familiarity. 
I know her. I know him. There's a mundane familiarity. And then there's meaningless habits. We just kind of going through the motions. That's what was happening in Ephesus. That's what happens in relationships. And then as we're kind of meandering through these habits, our attention begins to change. We begin to focus on something else. And pretty soon the interaction we had that was so deep is very shallow and we're just indifferent. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's something else on our... Where are you in this process with Jesus? Okay? That's the question. That's, the, that's a question from the church in Ephesus. Where are you in this process with Jesus? Is it just mundane familiarity now? Just going through the motions? Oh my goodness, the challenge that's, that's on the church and on the human heart, and I'm talking about the heart that's been regenerated, the saved heart, the challenge that's on us right now since March is being separated from each other and not being able to gather the way we need to. And I'm telling you, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to not be together. And I understand I'm not speaking into making that decision not to. I'm just speaking from a biblical standpoint that all of a sudden it's just so easy now for our attention to be diverted, is it not? Dadgum, the TV and the news screams at us about diverting our attention. It's easy for that to happen. No one falls out of love. And secondly, the depth of our love for Christ, according to what we see here, is directly seen in our witness. It's a lampstand for crying out loud. What do lampstands do? They shine. Right? And Jesus says, if you don't repent and return, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And I take that to mean that our witness will be taken away. Our effectiveness in building up the kingdom, and it'll be removed by Him. It's His church. He can do with it what He pleases. Has He done this? Come on, guys, think about it. There are churches that fill many communities. Some of them are museums now. I, I did a search this week. The oldest Protestant churches in America. Pull that up and see what you find. And it'll say they're still being used for a bar. Or for a museum. Or for a Unitarian Universalist congregation in one case. Church was built in 16-something. and unity. So here's my point. There's a lot of organized religious structures and groups of people that meet whose lampstand has been removed. And the depth of our love, Jesus says, is seen in, in, in the effectiveness of that witness. Our love for him is seen in our love for others, the way we shine for him, the way we witness for him, the way we love others in his name. Those are integrally connected. So let me finish up this way. I'm going to post something this afternoon, and I hadn't done it yet. There was a, there was a sermon preached over 200 years ago. It's now been published in an essay form. Um, by a gentleman named Chalmers. The, the article, the, the title of his sermon was The Expulsive Love of a New Affection. That sounds like a Puritan-type title, doesn't it? It's not explosive. It's expulsive. Boom. Something comes up from the inside and removes something and takes its place. And his sermon was from 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. His sermon is on that text. And here's what Chalmers says. 
He says basically that you cannot just simply remove an affection from a human heart. Because it's an empty vacuum and something's going to fill it. You can't just say, stop loving that. You see what I'm saying? It's not good to go to the church and say, church, you shouldn't be involved in, you know, you shouldn't be involved in this. Your attention's been drawn away by whatever. Stop that. You just can't say stop that. Because if you do, something else will come in and work its way in there, right? Something needs to remove the old and fill that spot. Something that's more attractive than what was removed. Something that's more valuable than what was taken away. Something that's more lasting than what you thought would last. And, and Chalmers says, it, it, here's what he says, The love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity, irreconcilable. They cannot dwell together in the same bosom. Good Lord, we've seen this over the last two weeks and last several months. It's, in, it's insane in my mind to see how we've allowed a, a, a seemingly biblical understanding of what it is to be a follower of Christ and be a Christian and all of a sudden see it so diluted, polluted. And yet, Jesus calls us back in grace. And that's what this is. This is expulsive love. He says the heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispose of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. God help us remember and repent and return. That's, that's the word from Jesus as we get into the meat of this book of Revelation. That's the word. And there's a lot of questions we can ask ourselves, and we'll be going back and forth about this. Um, let's just let's pray. Father, I thank you today for um, this word from Revelation. I pray, God, that the, that the words of Jesus' letter, his sermon, God, to the church in Ephesus and his sermon to us would... Continue to ring in our ears. I don't need to talk any more about it today. Um, Father, we, we just pray you'll keep our attention keen and our ears open and our hearts, Lord, so deeply in love with you. I pray for that, Lord, for this church. Father, I... I'm not responsible for what Christians do in New York. I'm not responsible for what they do in Washington, D.C. Lord, the elders of this church, we're not responsible for what Christians do in some other city and some other place. But, Lord, you've called us to shepherd this flock, these people in this place. Lord, our hearts have been sleepless at night and concerned. But, Father, thank you that we can trust you. Jesus, thank you that this is your church. These are your sheep. We all are your sheep. And so, Father, we pray for an expulsive affection for Christ to come in and blow out, displace everything else that may be there. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.